Well, we continue in our sermon series in the book of Acts, and this morning, let's have God's Word open us up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we will be reading from verse 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. And if you're there, I'll ask that you please rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, in the early church, the gospel had spread to this one particular nation, and the gospel worked so powerfully within it that in A.D. 330, this nation officially adopted Christianity as its national religion. Now, this was the first time in history that an entire nation declared allegiance to Jesus. What nation was it? It wasn't the Roman Empire. They adopted Christianity about 50 years later. It wasn't the nation of Israel where the apostles were ministering. And it certainly wasn't the great U.S. of A. No, the very first Christian nation was Ethiopia. And the oldest Christian church to date is the Ethiopian church. Now, what's fascinating about this history is that 
there was actually no missionary movement to reach Ethiopia. Paul never traveled there. Peter never wrote to the Ethiopians. The church in the New Testament had very little to no influence on all of this. So this begs the question, how did Ethiopia become the first Christian nation with the oldest surviving Christian church? Well, we don't know exactly how, and we don't know everything that happened. But we do know how it begins. It begins with the conversion of the first Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch. The early church fathers tell us that this Ethiopian eunuch, after being converted and being baptized, would then go on to Ethiopia proclaiming the name of Jesus, sharing the good news of the gospel wherever he went. Now, what I want to do today is, today I want to simply go through today's passage, Acts 8, and I want to look at how the gospel worked to change this individual to eventually transform an entire nation. So how was the gospel at work in this Ethiopian unit, which would then go on, which he would then go on to proclaim Jesus among this African nation? Now, today's passage opens with an angel telling Philip to rise, go up toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, notice Philip isn't given any other instructions. He isn't given an explanation. Simply, he's told, get up and go. This is what faith often looks like. This is what obedience should look like. God speaks. And his people respond. Now, the passage doesn't tell us how long Philip traveled until the Spirit spoke to him again. But it was probably a few days. And just in case, if we didn't know, Luke tells us that the road that he traveled on was a desert road. Philip doesn't know why the Spirit is calling him. Philip doesn't know for how long he has to travel. You know, the two most common questions that we ask God are what? Why and how long? Why, how long? But Philip, he doesn't ask these questions because he doesn't need to know. Why? Because the one who called him does. And for Philip, that is enough. Further, Philip, we find he doesn't make excuses. I'm sure he could have said, Or at least as I was reading this, I was thinking about my response, what I would have said. When the Spirit says, you know, get up and go, you know, Philip could have said, you know, I just came back from Samaria. I just did amazing work there. I'll pass on this one, and I'll take the next one. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm just a deacon. There are all these apostles. You can send one of them. No. God spoke, and Philip responds. You know, I think some of us, we have our lives so well planned out. We have our lives so well planned out with Google calendars and Slack conversations and Zoom meetings. Everything is so well planned from meal prepping to financial planning. So well organized, so well planned to the point 
that when God calls us, it feels like an inconvenience and a disruption to our schedule. When God calls us, what do we do? We first respond by asking questions and demanding answers. How long? Why? Well, often we find that when the Lord calls in Scripture, He calls to just go forth, to obey, to respond to what the Lord is saying. See, God isn't in the business of persuasion. He's in the business of proclaiming. God is God. He does not have to persuade us that He is right. He calls. And you know, when the Bible speaks of faith, it speaks of faith, it categorizes faith as something that's simple, something that's childlike, something that's simple-minded. But for us, we consider that to either be radical or worse, naive and stupid. But friends, I just want to remind us all this morning, when we decided to follow Jesus, When we decided to follow Jesus, he didn't hand to us a detailed itinerary of what our faith journey is going to look like. No, the decision was exactly that. It was to follow. It was to follow Jesus. And the one who follows doesn't have to know everything. We just simply need to follow. The Lord calls, Philip follows. Now Luke continues that on this same road, there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Luke tells us that he was a court official of the queen of Ethiopia, and he had the very special job of looking after all of her treasure. Now this eunuch further had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and he was returning in his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, there are a few things to note about this individual, a few things to note. First, this man is a very powerful man. He's a royal court member, and he works very closely with the queen. Right? There's this saying, proximity to power is power. The closer you are to power, the more powerful you are. That's why people want to live in places like New York City, Washington, D.C., where powerful people are at. Why? Because the closer you are to power, the more power you have. But this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he's not just any court official. We know that. He's in charge of the queen's treasure. So not only is proximity to power power, but proximity to wealth is also power. He's close to the royal family, and he's close to money. So the first thing we have to know about this man is he's a very powerful individual. He's riding in a chariot. He has an entourage with him, and he possesses a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. Now, some of us might be thinking, so what? Isaiah? Who cares? But you have to understand, scrolls at that time were extremely expensive. It wasn't the first, it wasn't, you know, the first edition, but these scrolls were handwritten. And to actually obtain a copy, you had to be someone of position and influence. He had a scroll of Isaiah. So 
So he's a powerful man. Second thing we know about this man, he's also a deeply religious man. We're not sure how he discovered Judaism, but this man, he was inquisitive enough to explore it. He was spiritually hungry enough to seek it out, and he was committed enough to practice it. You know, throughout the ancient Roman world, there were many non-ethnic Jews who converted to Judaism. Now, these people were generally uh, genuine, sincere truth seekers. There were individuals who, when they looked out upon the pagan gods and the pagan religions, they saw that it was shallow. They saw that the pagan gods were immoral. They saw that they were not trustworthy. They were deceitful. And as they sought truth, they discovered Judaism. They discovered the one true God who was creator. They discovered Yahweh who was faithful and trustworthy, a God who was all-powerful and all-loving. And these truth-seekers, as they discovered Yahweh, they were convinced and they were converted. So this eunuch, he isn't just powerful, but he's deeply religious. He's a genuine truth-seeker. He, just, he, he doesn't just have the privilege and the luxury to take time off and travel, but he also has the desire to worship. So, he's powerful, he's a deeply religious man, but third, the text tells us this man was a eunuch. There was something deficient about him. You know, most of the time, uh, eunuchs, uh, it, during this time, they were former slaves, former slaves who were castrated so that they can work closely with the royal family and not pose a threat in any way. This man had to work closely with the king. And so his genitals were crushed so that he would pose no threat to the continuation of that kingdom. So who is this man? Well, he's powerful. He has access to Uh, money. He's deeply religious, but he's a man who's a eunuch. He was likely forced to be deeply committed to his job. So he became a very powerful person, but it was at the expense of his identity. His exchange was his identity for his career. The prospect of a spouse and a family was forfeited so that he could perform his job well. I think this is critical to understanding this man in Acts 8. On the outside, here's a man who seems to have it all. He has power, position, wealth, good character, a sincere heart, a genuine faith. But there was something deeply missing in this person's life. I think this is a really important lesson for all of us and how we view and treat and judge other people. Quite often, we simply judge people according to outward appearances and accomplishments. Oh, this person is this. He has this degree. He lives in this neighborhood. He has this job. Look at his family. Everything looks great. And we simply judge them according to their outward appearances and their accomplishments. And we fail to truly understand and sympathize with their deep personal struggles. 
We judge people according to their outward appearances, and we fail to see the emptiness of the heart. You see, this man, outside of his career, outside of his job, this man actually had no worth. If he wasn't a court official, if all of a sudden that kingdom was overturned, society would see him as worthless. He's a castrated, emasculated piece of flesh. He has no identity apart from his job. If you ask me what I think is the true meaning of emptiness, I think it's exactly this. Where on the outside you appear to have everything, but once you peel back the layers, you don't have anything. Take away the position, the prestige, the power, all of these things, these things that are just social constructs, right? You take away these social constructs, and if you don't have an identity outside of that, I think that's true emptiness. See, emptiness isn't just having nothing. That's called poverty. But emptiness is working so hard for something and realizing it was all in vain. It has no true worth, no eternal value. Emptiness is working hard to try to be a somebody at the expense of truly finding yourself in Jesus and the purpose that God has for you. Emptiness is working so hard at life and forfeiting God's calling for you in your life. Or as Jesus himself says so succinctly, gaining the whole world, yet forfeiting your soul. That is emptiness. And the emptiness that this eunuch experienced, I think, was only exacerbated by his trip to Jerusalem. See, this man went to Jerusalem to worship because he thought he had discovered God. He thought he had found his worth. And as he goes to this temple to worship, he realizes that he isn't accepted. If you look with me in Deuteronomy 23.1, it says this. It's speaking of who can approach God, who can come into the temple or the tabernacle, who can be among the assembly of God's people. And this is what Deuteronomy 23.1 says. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Leviticus 21, verses 17 to 20. It speaks of people who can't draw near to God. So it says, no one who has a blemish, a blind man or a lame man, one who has a mutilated flesh or a limb too long, and it goes on and on and on. And it says, someone with crushed testicles cannot draw near to God. See, this eunuch came to Jerusalem to worship. He came to Jerusalem to worship, but ultimately he was denied entrance into the temple. Why? Because he was considered an outsider, an outcast, someone who was deformed, deficient. I want, I want you for a moment, just put yourself in the shoes of this eunuch. Right? The world thinks he's a somebody. His own entourage thinks he's a somebody. He enters Jerusalem with all the pop and the circumstance, with the chariot. He has a copy of the scroll of Isaiah in his hands. That's like the equivalent of owning a Monet and bringing that with you. 
You would think that the priests of the temple would roll out the red carpet for this man. I mean, he has deep pockets, he has deep connections, and they can recruit him to be an ambassador for Judaism. I mean, this man is a model minority. But no. Unfortunately, that which made him a somebody in the eyes of the world disqualified him for temple worship. The physical sacrifice which propelled his career forward detained him from being among the people of God and worshiping, drawing near to the God whom he so desired. In the end, even the religion that this man voluntarily joined, the religion not of his birth, not the religion that he was forced into, but the religion that he voluntarily gave himself to rejected him. And this is the man that the Lord was after. This is the man that God sends Philip to. As Philip is journeying, the Spirit says, go, catch up to that man. There's someone on a chariot, go catch up to him. I mean, what, what instructions, right? It's like, here, there's someone in this vehicle, catch up to him, and you have to go there on foot. So he's running there on foot, and he catches up to this chariot, and he asks the man, do you know what you're reading? The eunuch responds, how can I? How can I know what I'm reading unless someone actually explains to me what this is? It seems that this man is dealing with disappointment, frustration, or at least confusion. And so Philip gets inside the chariot, and he discovers that the man the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. This is how Isaiah 53 reads the portion. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch goes on to ask Philip, who is this person? See, there was something about this person in in Isaiah 53 that sparked the eunuch's interest. Was it because, I don't know, it resonated with his own experience? A man who was humiliated, a man who was denied justice? These are some of the things the eunuch experienced. Was it because the eunuch saw redemption in this figure? You know, a few verses earlier in Isaiah 53, 5, reads like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Was it something about this man whose wounds, who, who threw... Through, who, who's, through wounds that we are healed? Was it something that the eunuch found? Was he seeking healing? This idea of this man being crushed for iniquities. This was the same experience that this man had. And once again, we find the eunuch is curious. He's spiritually hungry. So Philip starts from this passage and he begins to tell him the good news of Jesus. He says, this figure whom God pierced for our sins, this figure whom God smitten for us, our transgressions, this figure whom God crushed because of our brokenness and deformity, 
this lamb who was slaughtered for our deficiencies. Philip explains, this man is Jesus. And as the eunuch hears about Jesus, as he starts to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament and the temple worship that he just experienced, it starts to make sense to him. It starts to make sense to him, not just up here, but it starts to make sense to him down here in his heart. See, this eunuch finally understood why he was denied entrance into the temple. God is holy. And anyone who is a sinner cannot approach him. And as Isaiah is explained to him, as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed to him, he understands that while God is holy and no sinner can approach him, he understands now that through the work of Jesus, his sins were wiped clean. Though they were red as scarlet, he became white as snow, so that even a eunuch, even a man who was emasculated, could enter into the presence of God freely and boldly. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that came upon him brought us peace. And so the eunuch, being convinced of this, asks Philip, baptize me. See, this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, he discovered truth. But he discovered not just truth, but he discovered healing. He found redemption. See, friends, we have to understand the gospel isn't just true, but the gospel is life-giving. The gospel isn't just true, but it is redemptive. So this Ethiopian eunuch, he understood it here and he felt it here. And now this man wants to make a a public profession in front of his own servants and his workers. You know, you have to imagine these people who followed this Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, their master, they just saw their master being rejected. And that was probably a sore spot for them. They probably agreed, let's not tell anyone about this experience. Outside the kingdom, no one spoke about their master's brokenness. But here in this moment, the servants, the workers, they see their master hearing and accepting the gospel And they see that this master is freed from his shame. The emptiness that the man endured, the feeling of worthlessness that this man wrestled with his entire life, the shame that this man carried alongside him. As he hears the gospel of Jesus, he sees that these things, being nailed to the cross, and no longer having dominion and power over him. He says, baptize me. You know, I would imagine, uh, you know, as this man before or after his baptism, he probably kept reading. He probably kept reading the Old Testament and the scroll that he had, Isaiah. He probably kept reading it in light of Jesus and the good news that he heard. And I'm almost certain he stumbled upon Isaiah 56, which is, almost, which is only a few chapters later. This is what it says in Isaiah 56. God says, 
Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, I will give in my house and within my, mo- my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. See, this is something that the eunuch couldn't have missed while reading Isaiah. The promise of the gospel that an outsider would become an insider, that an orphan would become a child, that a foreigner would have a home. And this eunuch would have something better than sons and daughters, that he would have an everlasting name with the promise that he would never be cut off. See, this eunuch discovered that in Jesus, his worth is not in what he does, his job, his career, but it's his worth is in who he is in Jesus. That's what this man discovers. You know, it's noteworthy that the first non-Jew that comes to faith, the first non-Jew who receives baptism in Acts, is a black man from Africa. But it's not just any black man from Africa. It's a broken man, a eunuch, who had everything, who appeared to have everything on the outside, but inwardly was broken and empty. And the gospel comes upon this man, and it changes him. You know, I think Luke wants us in Acts 8 to contrast. He wants us to contrast the individual who comes right before uh, this passage, and that's Simon. If you remember last week, there's an individual named Simon, um, Simon Magnus, who uh, you know, performed all of these great signs and miracles, and uh, he receives Jesus, he accepts Jesus, but when he sees the apostles performing these miracles or giving the Spirit, Simon says, hey, I, I want that too. And you remember the, the apostles rebuke him and says, you know, let your money uh, perish with you. Then we find another man, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And, you know, I think Luke wants us to contrast these two individuals. You know, they're both met by Philip. They both hear the gospel of Jesus. They're both baptized. And they both confess Jesus. But what's the difference between these two people? Well, for Simon, he confesses Jesus. But it seems like the real struggles of the heart, the real emptiness that he was dealing with, the real desire for recognition, for acknowledgement, for power, for recognition, he didn't allow the gospel to touch that. So that when he sees the apostles doing all of these great things, he says, I want that. I will pay you to do that. Give me that power. While this eunuch, who had everything, who seemed to have everything, the gospel touched him in that most vulnerable area, the area of brokenness, the area of emptiness. That's the difference between these two people. You know, 
Church, if I can be completely honest with you, you know, churches in America today, they're filled with people who profess Jesus, filled with people who are baptized, filled with people who confess and say, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. But there's a world of a difference between those who really confess Jesus and allow the gospel to minister to them in their most vulnerable, broken, shameful areas. And there are those who just accept the gospel at the surface level. And on the surface, they all look the same. But when the rubber meets the road, these individuals who allow the gospel to meet them in the most, in their weakest areas, those are the individuals who have truly been to the foot of the cross. Friends, this morning, as we think upon this individual, as we think upon the promises of the gospel, the invitation for us is the same. Will you meet Jesus in your most vulnerable areas? In the emptiness and the brokenness of your lives, will you allow the gospel to reach that far and that deep into your life? Or will you just come to church this day, worship and hear the preaching, and just go on your way, living your life through the prism of that same brokenness, of that same emptiness? The invitation for us this morning is to come to Jesus in that area of vulnerability, in that area of brokenness, and allow the gospel to speak into it, to ultimately bring healing and redemption for your life. Listen to him this morning. Come before him this morning. Would you join me in prayer at this time?